You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 29th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Hopefully positive things will be taking place with respect to the future of North Korea. Latest summit status, perhaps slightly more on than off. My guests Tim Marshall and Joy Lodico will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Italy's apparent return to the days when nobody really knew who was Prime Minister from one hour to the next, another attempt by those pesky Europeans to derail the otherwise smooth-running, well-oiled and briskly efficient Brexit machine, and the likelihood that your house is owned by one of Britain's most famous universities. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Tim Marshall, editor of the whatandthewhy.com, former diplomatic editor of Sky News, author of several annoyingly well-selling books, and Joy Ladico, columnist at the Evening Standard here in London. Welcome both. Uh, we will start by sparing a thought for the hoteliers of Singapore as we go to air, uncertain of whether the, to brace for an influx of bibulous journalists to cover the Trump-Kim summit on June 12th or not. The meeting between the bloviating ogre who commands the cultish Federation of legions of glassy-eyed acolytes and the chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea was on, then off, and is now sort of on and yet off a veritable Schrodinger's summit. However, North Korea's former intelligence chief, General Kim Yong-chol, is travelling to New York. He will be the most senior North Korean official to visit the US this century. Uh, Tim, first of all, were you still diplomatic editor at Sky News? Um, Would you have blocked off June 12th by now? Would you be assuming you would be in Singapore? poor or not? Yes, and yes, I would. Um, I wobbled, obviously, when Mr. Trump uh, pretended it was all off, but um, I was confident that it would happen. Obviously, wobbled when he said no, but I'm not surprised that it's come back. Let me ask you a question. Please. If No one ever does. If this is a car <laughs> that's, that's for sale, which one of these two leaders is the car salesman and which one is the one that's buying the car? Oh, uh, uh, Kim Jong Un is selling the car all day long, exactly, uh, and, and and he's he's just trying to figure out in his own head, while keeping as straight a face as possible, how much he can rinse this mug for. Right? Exactly. So let's go back to the art of the deal, and Pence, the VP of a, a, a book Trump doesn't seem to have read. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to disagree. May twentieth, Mike Pence, vice president, comes back with some very tough language. Uh, about Libya, Gaddafi, in in the context of this deal with North Korea. May 23rd, North Koreans come back with some increasingly harsh language themselves, which is unacceptable to Trump on May 24th. He walks away from the car after having kicked its tyres and said, you know what, I don't want this car. And the North Koreans think, oh no, because they want to sell the car. Trump has come back, I think, in a stronger position. None of this is about the end game, about whether there's going to be a deal. But I'm just saying that if if there's a car to be sold here, it's being sold by the North Koreans, and the cash buyer is the one who has the better hand. Um, Joy, I'm just trying to figure out in my own head where I can take this metaphor next. 
Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, car, cars are going out of fashion anyway. It's all about bikes and electric vehicles and so forth. Um, I, I mean, I find it's the, the actual trading of insults. Um, I mean, we talk about Trump being potentially up for the Nobel Prize if he actually managed to sort out North Korea. And I'm thinking they should be going up for the Nobel Prize for illiterature. I mean, particularly on the basis of uh, the insults of trade. But finally, the letter that was written, which sounds very much like Trump himself dictated it to a secretary. Now, he sort of famously dictates these tweets. Uh, and it's it's spoken in such a way, you know, he's got his little sadly in there. He's got a funny, funny sentence constructions. And, um, you know, the letter appears and then suddenly we're, it's quite a, it's quite a straightforward letter saying you're dumped. Um, and yet somehow the dance is still going on in the background. Um, now, what, I don't know quite what Trump, I mean, Trump does... Uh, Trump may well lose face in a sense um, because it's quite clear that he has allowed the negotiations to carry on. Mm. It's impossible to disguise the fact that uh, there's a, a North Korean heading into New York for talks. So what does he do? How does he come back from that letter? Is that why everybody stopped talking about it? It, it doesn't matter to him. You know, he is pretty Teflon. It, it, he just he says one thing, he says another, everyone laughs at him. But in fact, he's making progress nearly all the time and the, the meetings back on it it makes him look like he is the great deal maker as i said i'm not sure where you know how, how you get to a conclusion the north koreans need this far more than the americans need it they need the handshake on the front page of the north korean newspapers to prove that what kim tells his subject people is true that he is got parity on the world stage with these great powers because north korea is the greatest country on god's earth uh, and he also needs the investment that comes with a deal that he will then try to play f to, to his uh, advantage. And I mean, that's where I think things get really sticky, because I think the two leaders mean different things by nuclear disarmament. But if we're just talking about getting to the negotiating table, I think Trump, again, has played it reasonably well by thinking the art of the deal and being prepared to walk away knowing that the other guy wants it more. Uh, Joy, do you get any sense, though, that Trump wants any more from this than the same thing, the sort of grinning handshake photo? Because uh, the one thing we do know about Trump is that he is all about the spectacle. He's all about drawing attention to himself. He doesn't necessarily think anything much through beyond that. Will he, will he consider it a success if he's able to say, I have done what no other US president has done, especially not the guy who was here before me, uh, and, and shake hands with the leader of North Korea. Yeah, I mean, it's good. It, it, you're right. It is all about the glory. Mm. Um, but I would also imagine, and, and you may have a better idea on this, which is if he's the one who goes to make peace with North Korea, when in fact, I think it's China should, in theory, have been brokering this. China's just been outplayed by Trump. Yes. Um, and that sort of raises, well, it will raise a new set of tensions. But again, it raises his status in Asia at the point at which he's talking trade wars uh, and he's talking about pushing them into a corner. So, I mean, I, I have this which I think you think you're almost sharing, which is Trump is in fact rather good at his job in a kind of kamikaze kind of way. Oh, don't you start. Tim, <laughs> Tim, Tim, Tim does this, Joy. He comes in and just tries to wind us up by pretending that Donald Trump actually has a clue what he's doing. No, I, 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 it's not a wind-up. I know it does wind you up, but it's, <laughs> but it's not a wind-up. I think there is creativity in the chaos. Mm. I think there is an over a very, very wide basic plan. I mean, when it comes to detail, I don't think he has the first idea what he's doing, but I think he has an innate grasp of the big details uh, and, and what, what he can and can't push. You know, the North Korean, the, the, the advance advance party of the White House went to Singapore and they were scoping out the big hotels for security. Where can we do it? What can we do it? And the other side didn't turn up. And when he heard that, 
he was absolutely furious because he's been stiffed. And this isn't a guy that you stiff. I mean, this is the godfather. <laughs> He'll start calling himself that. I mean, you, you, you can't encourage him. Um, Joy, is there, is there any sense, do you think, that, that Donald Trump has an idea in his head of what would constitute a meaningful uh, success from the summit? Or does the distinction not matter to him? I don't think the distinction matters. I think you have to just come out saying we have got what we want. And both sides have to come out saying we yeah. have got what we want. Um, I mean, in terms of disarmament, there'll be a whole load of um, protocols and so forth and sort of thing that you could end up comparing with Iran. But he, again, it's just about playing to the media. It's about having your Twitter line saying, I did the deal. I did something that nobody else yeah. has managed to do. I think Joy's previous comments about um, China getting played are, are absolutely spot on. And also that the whole of Southeast Asia is looking at this because every time America blinks, they all shuffle a little bit closer to China. And every time China blinks, they'll shuffle a bit closer to China. <laughs> and, and, and that's this even bigger game. But it's why China is involved in this bigger game. And if we, are, if we do get to the negotiating table, which I still think we will, at that point, then you get even more complicated because I think they want different things. The Americans have got 28,000 troops in South Korea. They are a bargaining chip. He can say, I'll reduce it by 10, 15, whatever. The North Koreans can say, they all have to go. So you've got some wiggle room there. Trump can say, complete denuclearization within two years. Kim can say, 10 years. So, so they're, and I think even if they, if they get to the negotiating table, it, it probably will take a couple of years. But that's enough. They've, he's got him to the table. Clinton didn't. Bush didn't. Did not. The next Bush didn't. Uh, that last fella didn't. <laughs> and that is what it's partly about. So, you know, if he gets into the table, there's already a bit of a success there. OK, well, let's take a look now at Italy, which now looks likelier than not to hold its second general election in 2018. This follows the refusal of President Sergio Mattarella to sign off on the finance minister proposed by the unlikely governing coalition of far-left troublemakers Five Star and far-right provocateurs Lega. President Mattarella has since commissioned former IMF economist Carlo Cottarelli as interim prime minister, but given that Mr Cottarelli is pretty much an embodiment of everything, Five Star and Lega stand against his chances of a assembling a plausible government appear slim. Um, Joy, markets across Europe have been tanking fairly spectacularly today. Is that conclusive proof that Mattarella did either the right thing or the wrong thing in refusing the appointment of the finance minister? Uh, well, I, I saw some spikes on the kind of bond markets, which were actually quite frightening I mean, quite sharp. Um, it, 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 Italy has these sort of bathing governments where it's bathing season, everybody just has to go away to the beaches, calm down a little bit, read a book, come back <clears throat> and think about what to do again. Um, the intervention is, it would be a little bit like sort of our Queen intervening at the point at which we reach some sort of deadlock in this country over I don't know what sort of issue might be coming up. Um, and it, it, it's a question of democracy at that point in time. People say, well, we've been to vote. How can you at this point disrupt the process? Well, the trouble is the, that process, which we all adore, occasionally reaches this point of gridlock. The bond markets, I think, are most worried that, in fact, democracy will win at this point in time over a presidential ruling and um, Five Star or Liga actually take over. And their policies are... Uh, in, I mean, it's the, particularly it's the economic elements of it. There seems to be no respect for the idea of not emptying out the coffers in order to meet these flat tax plans, this um, income, uh, 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 basic income um, uh, promises they've made. Um, where does that leave us? 
I don't know. I mean, I think going bathing at this point for three months, and I think possibly <laughs> the bond traders might also want to just go bathing and wait for this next election because you need to keep giving democracy a chance. Or, or, or possibly hurling themselves into bodies of water from a great height. Yeah. Um, Tim, it is, is President, what was President Mattarella in appointing uh, Carlo Cottarelli fairly obviously trying to sabotage the coalition and force a new election, which will be uh, competed, uh, competed, competed, contested yes. under new election law which might provoke a or might result in a more orderly parliament. I think that's ex- exactly what he did. And he did it as, I mean, I'm obviously no Italian constitutional expert, but it does seem it was within his constitutional powers. His view is the finance minister you proposed is openly wanting to get Italy out of the euro. This was not what was put to the Italian people. Consequently, I'm not accepting him. Uh, so go away and have another think. Behind that lies um, the much bigger story, which is of Italy's place in Europe in the the future, which is we've now arrived at at this. Because it is said, and it was said before it happened, I I, I was hearing from um, people in in Europe, uh, continental Europe, I should say, during the week, that Brussels was on the phone to the president, um, Paris and Berlin, saying you cannot allow this government to come in because they're going to take Italy out of the euro, maybe. And he was lent on, still within his constitutional rights. So where we are now is the Italian electorate has been told to go away and have a think. Uh, And the next election, uh, which probably will be in September, October, after they've been on the beaches in the summer, the next election is not just about the economics and, and the platform that the two parties stood on to win this election. It's about where do you want Italy in Europe? Do you want it in the EU? Do you want it in in the euro? Uh, please go away and have another think. The danger of that is they may well come back with the same uh, choices that they've made last time. But in this classic EU way, they want them to go away until they get the right vote. Well, yeah, exactly. It's not the first time in EU history that that, that tack has been pursued. Um, but Joy, in the in the heart of both Five Stars and Lager's hearts, will they be really that displeased by this? Because obviously, on the one hand, this plays brilliantly into their sort of conspiratist, anti-elitist narrative. Uh, they can go back to their people and say, you see, the will of the people is being thwarted by these unaccountable EU panjandrums. And it also spares them uh, the task of actually having to do the terrifically boring and exacting work of actually governing the country. That's correct. I mean, I think they both like being opposition. When you actually say, well, let's go and govern, what should we do? Um, I mean, Italy's had a sort of technocratic government in the past. It doesn't know how to get through it. Monty's done it too, uh, been, you know, been in charge. Um, on the question of whether they uh, want to... It, it was not actually in their um, documents. When they no. drew up their documents, they didn't say they wanted to leave the euro. They, they didn't. I mean, and they've spent the last few years saying they did, but in the, you're right. In the election campaign and in their documents, they did not say we want out of the euro. And also, I mean, in terms of the economic obvious, it's not quite like Brexit. They're making good money. There's a sort of trade surplus. Uh, they're doing fine. It would be very difficult to go to the country and say it will be better for us if we leave the euro. And they... Bill Emmett, um, I shouldn't really take credit for any of this, but Bill Emmett analyses the figures and says, look, the thing is, they are massively in debt. It's 132 trillion. It's something ridiculous. Um, But if they leave the euro, they lose their ability to go into borrowing from the Mm. EU at preferential rates. And so, in fact, it's total economic suicide to leave. And that's a very straightforward and powerful argument. And so, therefore, it's all a mask to get another vote in which they have even more power? 
Is it, well, it's to try and get that question, I think, to come to a head. Yes. Um, because, you know, you have to go to the people and say, look, do you really want to leave uh, the EU? And I think the people, given those arguments, which are quite strong arguments, and the countries, you know, citizens do respond to economic arguments, will come back and go, well, no, we don't. So we'll vote for these parties, providing that's not their platform. Mm. But I don't think it's going to... I don't, there's sort of all this talk about kind of... Um, Renzi's party coming back in again. I mean, I think they're both dead. I think this is now a polarised country. Um, and in a weird way, I quite like the balance of this sort of two almost opposites because they will, I mean, not unlike Trump, they are quite creative in their thinking. And something interesting may happen in Italy, which has been, you know, in kind of chaos for, I mean, ever since I've you know, followed Italian news as an Italian. No, I, I mean, I do, yeah, I see it in the same uh, reference points that, that, that this is part of the new politics. Um, the, these these extremes, these new parties, which are gaining traction with electorates that really don't see that the existing parties, the French Socialist Party is a great example, have got the answers to the very difficult questions that are around at the moment. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Joy Ladico and Tim Marshall. Coming up next, some more of that new politics. Subscribe today to become part of the Monocle family. From product design to the best places to go, Monocle will bring a monthly dose of fresh ideas to your door. Being part of the family also comes with a 10% discount at the shop and online, as well as unlimited access to our online archive. In addition, you will enjoy priority access to selected product collaborations and receive exclusive offers and invitations around the world. Subscriptions start from £55. For more information, visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe. You're listening to Midori House on Monocle 24. Still with me are Tim Marshall and Joy Ladico. To Brexit now and a story from the bulging file marked things that may not have been thought all the way through. The EU, clearly enjoying itself at this point in the negotiations, has decided to slap the UK around still further over the issue of protecting regional specialty produce from across Europe. This means that among the regulations that the UK will need to write to replace regulations it already has are new laws preventing the enterprising merchants of the brave new Brexited UK from calling their fizzy drink champagne, their crumbly cheese feta and similar. Uh, Joy, there are more than 3,300 protected foods and drinks. This is going to be great fun, isn't it? It's going to be hilarious. And if you think about the, sort of all the important bodies that should be set up are our new, new medicine agency, our new banking agency. And then at the end of the list, we've got to start looking at kind of carefully and champagne and cognac. Uh, and the idea that anybody's done any planning on this at all um, <laughs> is a complete joke. The problem with this is that this makes headlines in newspapers. This is the stuff to which we get emotionally attached. It's the things we care about. So if, there's a, if there is Welsh Caerphilly, if Brexit was a vote about um, the land we live on, what sort of country we want to be on, the foodstuffs that we produce, they may not contribute that much to the economy. Uh, they may not be traded. Welsh Caerphilly may not be uh, eaten widely in Denmark, but it matters as a sort of emotional thing. And so this will go run and run and run and run as a story. Uh, Tim, a UK government spokesperson has re- responded to this story by saying, with, I believe, a straight face, uh, leaving the EU gives us a golden opportunity to secure ambitious free trade deals while supporting our farmers and producers to grow and sell more great British food. Um, how, how plausible an outlook does that seem to you? Uh, reasonable. 
Reasonable. Reasonably okay. plausible. Reasonably plausible. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm, I am a... An optimist. Reluctant... No, what's, what's the phrase I have? I'm a relaxed Remainer. You know, I know we're going, but I'm reasonably relaxed about it. Um, and I think all... I mean, look, th- this is a great story because you get to say cheddar, Cornish pasties, Scotch whiskey, Manchego cheese, etc., etc., when it comes down to it, on the fourth night of when it comes down to the final Brussels summit, where we agree to fudge, there's another food <laughs> for you. At this point, Mrs. Uh, Merkel will say, I'll give you your Cornish pasties, but you have to give us the bratwurst. This is, this is doable. Galileo, the satellite GPS system, is more difficult. The Irish border, I mean, that's the real stuff. This is a great story because... As Joyce says, it's about identity. And as she also says, it will run more than a seven-day-old brie. <laughs> See what I did there? Seamless. Um, Joy, on the subject of the real stuff then, we are, if I've done the maths right, about 10 months uh, from the UK leaving the EU. Uh, h- how would you say it's going? Well, it's going uh, marvellously, isn't it? Um, actually, I was at a party this weekend with somebody who is uh, one of David Davis's sort of heads of staff at uh, Dexu, uh, along with somebody who's advising Keir Starmer, the Labour uh, shadow Brexit minister. Was, the two that... of them were shaking hands, perfectly jolly, yeah. but the man in Dexu who had a a big fixed grin on his face every time he was asked any question. Just kept going, everything's going I thought you were yeah. going to say he was already drunk by midday. He was quite drunk, but he just kept repeating the same line, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, with an incredibly pained expression on his face. So I couldn't take down the quote in any way as negative. Um, well, so the customs union now looks like it's now being kind of just kicked off again beyond the boundary. Northern Ireland is stuck. Northern Ireland is about to get much more interesting now. Uh, there's a sort of rebel. Um, the votes on abortion being taken to the DUP. Um, It's it's this idea of a referendum actually creates total chaos and it's kind of an entropy result. You narrow down this, this, this question of should we be in the EU or out? And you should get a yes or a no, but in fact you get a yes but no, but yes but but what happens? And it it's now become a kind of almost impossible project. And you've got to again remember, there's 27 of them who all sit down, all their trade negotiators come together, they come up with an agreement, they just follow a line. And we are just one country against them trying to battle with the same amount of bureaucracy. And we just don't have the resources. And at the moment, don't seem to have the leadership or intelligence to get through it. So I'm not a relaxed Remainer. I'm quite a sort of um, head in hands Remainer at this point in time. I wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be if, if we somebody had given us a beautiful blueprint of what it's going to look mm. like which wasn't sunlit uplands i'd be a bit happier but it i'm getting unhappier and unhappier with it i mean i i'm a i'm a semi-relaxed remainer uh, i would characterize it as tim just on the grounds that i increasingly suspect that this transition period may in fact outlive all of yeah. us that that is what's emerging i mean we're going to have a two-year transition period uh, 2020 people are already using the language of 2022 2023 <laughs> and in that in that five years perhaps joy's blueprint could arrive and and i, I am with you on on this joy that uh, yes i i was relaxed i'm still fairly relaxed <laughs> but i'm also slightly concerned that 10 months out can you show us the plan or just give us a clue without without showing your complete hand to the negotiators in, in Brussels, fine, but do you have any ideas? 
because you don't seem to have told us them. Well, I think a lot of the ideas that are coming... I mean, the thing about, you know, something like Boris Johnson in particular and his um, Max Fack is this is a... I mean, he, he's a journalist, this is Michael Gove. They pick a top line and kind of go, oh, we can do this. And I think I, mean, I think if you decode what they're talking about, and these, uh, they're talking about is, you know, electronic trading over and if you know which lorry is going through, it's all going to be very easy. It's a, literally, it feels like an idea that's been picked up from an article and they're quickly trying to put the evidence together to make it work. And these solutions don't really work under the rigour of a, you know, a, a negotiating the table. Did a magazine or newspaper article has ever been written like that? <laughs> I, I read um, something in the Times yesterday which was quite sobering. It was from someone in the car manufacturing business. Uh, they, they supply uh, the petrol tanks to the cars. They have an eight-hour... Uh, delivery mm. uh, you know they know that here are the orders here are the orders eight hours ahead it's all going through it's going through it's going through the car's going fitted off it goes the moment the first lorry coming from germany or france uh, gets stuck because of the it order checks, the whole supply chain at that point that eight hours becomes 12 18 and 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 the, the car can't leave the assembly line because it hasn't got a petrol tank and at that you know you replicate that over and over again and, you, and yeah i i can see if these people that we place our trust in do not get it right, we're going to get it pretty wrong. Okay, well finally tonight, spare a thought also for those in the PR departments of Oxford and Cambridge Universities who have particular responsibility for debunking the notion that the two schools are bastions of entrenched privilege. An investigation into their property holdings has valued the combined portfolios of Oxford and Cambridge at just north of 3.5 billion quid and covering an area roughly four times the size of Manchester. So it's probably also a pretty bad day for those in the fundraising departments of various Oxbridge colleges whose jobs involve shaking change out of alumni. Um, Joy, this is an end, apparently, to that popular urban myth that the Church of England is the largest landowner in the United Kingdom. Is Is this surprising? Uh, I'm not that surprised by it. I mean, they've basically, I mean, both the church and the um, Oxford, um, Oxbridge have been investing in land for a, a thousand years. And in fact, I think uh, were I investing in land for a thousand years, I would have hoped I'd done a, a little bit better than they had. I mean, I think 3.5 billion just, you know, isn't really well, good if, enough. If you, if, you, if you take it back over 10 centuries, yes, you make a reasonable point. Yeah, if you, I mean, you you, should... One would hope that it had one started in the 11th century, you could have cleaned up quite fantastically by I mean, now. at the rate Nick Jones and Soho House is going, they will own, you know, far more than um, the Oxbridge Colleges. But also, the other thing was an interesting stat, which was it would pay for one year's worth of um, student education, 3.5 billion. In fact, it's nothing. I mean, if you said it was going to pay for 50 years of educating uh, students in this country, fine, but it's only a year. Uh, Tim, is there anything we can actually do with the information that Sir John's College Oxford, which is an extremely posh college, the alma mater of Tony Blair, among many others, owns the training ground of Millwall Football Club? (laughs) Well, certainly that is a headline writer's dream, and there's all sorts of jokes. (laughs) that will spring out of it. Um, I'm I'm not there yet. I mean, yeah, I I didn't know this. I had no idea. And some of the detail, one of them, Trinity... Yes, owns the O2 Arena. I know, that's the most fantastic. Yeah. Um, and they went in and they bought it in 2009 or so. Another one of the Oxford colleges um, has just sold some shops on Kensington High Street, which visitors to London... Oh, haven't we all? But I, I, did, I did do a little bit of reading around it. I wanted to know who owns elsewhere. I, I, do you know what? This is actually the echoes of the feudal system. It really is. The, 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 it's the end of the feudal system and they've still got these footholds uh, all over the country. It's the same in Spain. To a lesser extent, it's the same in France. I did find out that the Queen owns Australia. Okay, good. And that Ted Turner, 
of CNN mm -hmm. fame, owns two million acres of land in Georgia and Montana, and owns large tracts of land in Argentina. I think the most interesting thing I came across was thinking about the Qataris who are slowly buying up London. And so they own the Shard, they own bits of Mayfair. And somebody said to me, and I'm afraid I don't have the stats on it, that they basically own Queensway. So you walk up that street, you're essentially walking on, on uh, land bought by the Qatari um, Sovereign Wealth Fund. So we are, the whole streets are just disappearing. I mean, is this, and I'll ask you both, I'll ask you first, Joy, explain this to a foreigner. Is this the root of the British obsessions with both class and property? Because reading all of this reminded me of a quote attributed I hope correctly to the Duke of Westminster, who was once asked for any advice he might give to a budding entrepreneur and, reply, <laughs> and replied, try to have an ancestor who was a very good friend of William the Conqueror. <laughs> Well, what do we do? I mean, it's there's a kind of a love of property and ownership in this country. There's also a love of hiding uh, what you own, which is why we have all these tax havens who have, uh, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the reason you don't know who owns the UK is because it's hidden in these offshore funds. Now, those many of those offshore um, uh, tax havens have now signed up to deals where the HMRC can go and inquire who owns a piece of land. But we're not going to find out uh, in any hurry who in fact owns Britain. And uh, as you've just discovered, it's not the Queen. And in fact, it's somebody, off I mean, it's a foreigner very often. Tim, is, is, is this basically where the whole class thing comes from? The fact that some people got lucky circa, what are we up to now, 11 centuries ago and some people didn't? Yeah, I mean, ultimately the royal family uh, is there because... X years ago, one of their relatives killed one of my relatives, you know, and, and, and on and on we go down through history, which is a strange system for a, a form of government, <laughs> to quote a well-known film. Look, look, I mean, I don't get that excited about it because I think, it's, um, I think it is an echo of feudalism, but I do also think it's pretty much the same in most countries. I, I was just I was just thinking about the deeds. So I bought some woods with a cottage on it, uh, and the deeds go back, and you can trace it back. And Henry VIII owned it, and he gave it to an aristocrat who sold it to somebody in the landed gentry, uh, who sold it on to somebody who just did some forestry, who sold it to an investment banker, and he sold it to me. And the kind of history of how one piece of land moves Dame Joy as shows you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Dame Joy Ladico and Tim Marshall, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show is produced by Tom Hall, researched by. Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next, then on design at 1900. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns tomorrow at 1800. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.